what's the audio like? How we are we? You, uh, you can hear it all. Testing oh, absolutely. One, two, yeah, there's like not that. enough uh, Fab. ambient noise to be a hindrance. Not enough Fleetwood Mac to hinder our progress here. Oh, the Mac. The Mac. It is Carcon Carne, sponsored by the Autobarn Mazda of Evanston. The brand new, all new 2019 Mazda 3 sedan and hatchback have arrived, and they're now in stock. Autobarn Mazda of Evanston, 1015 Chicago Avenue, named Dealer of the Year by DealerRater.com for 2019. I'm James Van Osdell, sitting across from poet, musician, raconteur, a vision on the silver screen, songwriter, hero, muse, Robin Hitchcock. It's Carcon Carne. Hey, James, how are you? I'm wonderful. Well, I saw your show last night. Uh, we're recording oh, yeah. this first week of April. I saw you at Space. One thing I love that you do, you've got four plus decades of music to choose from. You don't play the same set list every night. No, no. I think that's a courtesy to the fans and probably a courtesy to yourself, it's a courtesy too. courtesy to me. I mean, once you have the same set list, which I suppose you do if you're Fleetwood Mac or, for instance, if you're Bruce Springsteen on Broadway... You're, it's essentially like a play. It's set. There's nothing you can do. You can maybe change the introduction slightly or you can play a few different mistakes on a guitar or whatever, but but it's set. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same as going and in a way like, you know, going and doing Macbeth or King Lear or the cocktail party or whatever. It's, it's a play. That's it. The drama. Um, and I really don't like that kind of thing. Like I don't like memorizing introductions and doing them twice. I don't, I mean, like if you write a book or you paint a picture, you you write that book once and, and that's it. There it is, Brighton Rock, whatever. You might, there might be a new edition of it or something, you might, you know, some other distinguished person might write a foreword. If you paint a picture, that's it you know you maybe you'll die and then in 300 years time if you're lucky and the painting's still around some people will retouch it and say oh look you know there's a barge that didn't used to be here let's bring it back like someone editing in a section of sweet jane that was taken out you know but those things kind of happen once you know you paint a picture that's it you write a book or a play that's it but songs either this is a privilege or not the songs are with you for life so i'm still singing songs that i wrote 40 years ago in some cases um and that's a plus in a way because it means i've bottled little section little bits of time i've bottled bits of my life like a firefly in a jar that doesn't suffocate or like a gif if you want to look at things in in um Instagram terms, you know, a little recurring motif that goes round and round, little trapped souls, trapped moments. But but time still is moving on, and one of the big functions of time is as a, a liberator as much as a destroyer. Time frees you up to make things slightly different each time. So, so if I'm doing the show and I'm exhuming nightly these little nuggets of existence these fireflies from my past 
the least I can do is put them in a different order or select a different one. Aha, you know. I know I've played this area. I played in Chicago in January and I played in Ch or outside Chicago in January and I played in Chicago in November. So I've played here a lot. So I figure if I'm last night, I'm not going to go in and do the most obvious selection of Robin Hitchcock songs because they've probably all heard them in the last six months, you know. That was a, I would think last night's was a fairly deeply saturated listening crowd. You know, I don't think there were that many casual listeners. They would, they would know the arcane stuff and they'd also be yes. up for something new. So that's a very, very long answer to what was a short question. One of the things, you're talking about history and time in Chicago, uh, you dredged up memories of lounge acts. And Metro. Yeah. So it seems like there's a connectedness between you and this city. Oh, yeah, enormously. A warmness. Chicago was the first place I played in the States outside of New York. So this goes back to 1985. And I think I played, I played the Metro in the summer and maybe I played the Vic in the winter with the Egyptians. Yeah, yeah. So this was Fegmania? This was Fegmania and Gotta Let This Hen Out, so a long time ago, yeah. Which was, I think, when I first discovered you. And I remember, here's something interesting. I mean, I think Robin Hitchcock means so many different things to so many different people. For me, my first connection with Robin Hitchcock, I think that's when I started to understand what was then referred to as alternative music. A friend just said, sat me down and said, you've got to listen to this guy. He's like John Lennon for the rest of us. <laughs> I'd like to hear the Paul McCartney for the rest of us. <laughs> Should have met up with him. Um, I mean, it's definitely a passe term. It's an obsolete term. But, um, you know, it, it was always a rather... It was a rather amorphous genre. I mean, you know, could you sit on the porch and play some alternative? You know, you can play <laughs> some blues, you can play some country, you can play some bluegrass aficionados of all these will will if if they're the talking kind will could go deep into a dissection of what is blues sure. and what is not blues but to the outside ears you can pretty much say it's a 12 bar it's a blues or this sounds this sounds twangy to me it's country or mm -hmm. wow here come the banjos it's bluegrass you know and this is a hey a Haydn string quartet i think this is probably a string quartet yeah. oh no it's not you know, I mean, it, it but alternative, what, what could you say? You know, there was no definition of an alternative sound. There were, there were acts that were part of it. There were acts that came out of it very large, like R.E.M. Um, and, and people like The Cure and stuff. R.E.M., uh, very early and very vocal fans they, of Robin they were, um Yeah, they were very supportive. They were very helpful. And they, and they, they, soared a long way above the the alternative marsh if you like and then there were people like the replacements and um uh, and the violent femmes and people like jonathan richmond and myself who you know just happened to come along at the time and are now probably just known as you know characters you wouldn't you define Jonathan Richmond as well. Jonathan Richmond's like Jonathan Richmond, and you'd probably the same say the same about me, you know. Um, but then we were always solo acts, as opposed to REM or the Replacements or that. But you know, it's that that time, 
10,000 Maniacs and people who were actually pop stars like the Psychedelic Furs and the Pretenders um, and the B-52s also were put into that genre. Yeah. And now, you know, what, what do we all have in common? We all sound quaint. <laughs> some of us probably get bigger royalty checks than others and probably have, some of us have got larger alimonies to pay off than others or medical <laughs> bills, you know. Speaking of psychedelic furs, uh, did you talk to Richard Butler about the ghost in you? Do you know what his response was to that? Because I think it's a, one of your more gorgeous covers. I've never talked to him about it. I, I've, I've played it quite often live. And um, uh, I played, I opened for the psychedelic furs at Thalia Hall a couple of years ago. And then I did my own show there last November. Um, I enjoy the furs because they... Their fireflies are very carefully bottled. They are frozen moments in time which come alive. They sound and kind of look exactly like they did nearly 40 years ago. Um, they're the Paul McCartney school of this is what you loved. This is how it sounded. Here it is. And hey, I look much the same, you know. Um, whereas Bob Dylan is... Um, you can see the passage of time. You can just see the, the years between when he first wrote Like a Rolling Stone and what it is now. And like many people, I prefer the original, but I suppose you can say whatever you think of it. You just say, well, the paint never dried on, on Bob Dylan's compositions, you know. In a way, he, he's the, the, he kind of, Gain says what I said to begin with, you know, you kind of write something once and, and it's there. With In a way, his songs are endlessly fluid. They don't, they obviously appear not to be finished <laughs> from the way he sings them, you know. Um, yeah. You talked last night um, about the carcass of the music industry. Oh, but yeah. You, you've seen, you've seen everything at this point. I mean, you've had the major label ride. You've been independent. What is it like to be you, Robin Hitchcock, as a touring recording artist in 2019 with all you've encountered and seen along the way, all the detritus left in the wake <laughs> of the industry? Well, I think it's much the same, really. I mean, I was, I was independent, that's to say I couldn't get signed for about 10 years before I got signed by A&M in America, who actually saw me as a potentially profitable investment. And in those days, record labels would sign you and, and put out, you know, three or four records before thinking, well, maybe you aren't profitable. Um, then I was on Warners, who had me for like two and a half records and realized I wasn't. So I was, I was done with major labels by 2000. But my whole gestation period... Um, I mean, arguably, the songs, the, the era, the stuff I'm best known or loved for the soft boys and the often dream of trains fegmania element that the records people really feel extremely nostalgic about because it takes them all back somewhere i mean you must have been 16 when you first heard me or something i was i think 17 yeah and then i went back to black snake diamond roll and then soft boys like i played catch up and then right i mean i remember meeting some kids at a bus stop when i first played here or second played here in 1985 and they came up and said oh we saw you last night you're Robin Hitchcock and I was only 32 but you know oh it's it's our man Brian um, uh, 
That's Brian Ferry. Oh, yeah, I couldn't hear it through my headphones. Uh, I, I, I've got plenty of Roxy but, music questions. Um, but that's a good omen. But these, I well, remember these, covered I remember this. these this guys. Is more than this. Yeah, I remember these guys coming up to me and, and saying they'd been to the show, and I said, "Whoa, you, you look young. How old are you, young man?" And the, he, the guy said, "I'm 16." And I said, "Blimey, I'm twice your age." You know, <laughs> the talking about the A and M catalog. And for a lot of people, that was an entry point. Globe of Frogs, all the all the respect, that whole era. But it's not available digitally. It's not available at all because it's only available through Universal. A&M was an independent label when I signed to them in 1987. Two, three years later, they were absorbed by Polygram. A few years after that, Polygram was absorbed by some whiskey manufacturing company or something, and then the whole thing was swallowed by Universal. So my... A&M masters all belong to Universal Music, and it, it is to them that those questions should be directed. I have it's no, frustrating. I have no control over them. All I can say is that those records are widely available, and the chances are, if you're even asking about them, you have them on some format. You know, um, I'm not going to make any money on it or lose any. If you want to rip it from somewhere, rip it. You know, rip your old copy. Um, if those records did come out now, I wouldn't make any money off them, so I'm not really that bothered, you know. The, I, the independent stuff, the stuff that I now uh, I own up to up to uh, Element of Light and then my album I from 1990, um, you know, those are things that I and, and the people I was involved with get royalties for, so I'm happy to direct you to those. <laughs> or the of, listener. Uh, speaking yeah. of that, it was lovely to hear Queen Elvis last night as a show. Oh, uh, that's, uh, that's always fun to do with Emma, yeah. Are you always reading? I, I get the sense that someone with your academic background and just the way you communicate, I feel like you're, you've probably always got your face in a book. Um, not enough. I spend too much time on social media, although I've disconnected from Twitter now, but but um, yeah, I read books, but I don't necessarily read challenging, provocative books. They might just be crime novels or Julian Barnes or something. What I do find is it's quite hard to read the classics. I know I'm never going to read Moby Dick or War and Peace. Um, I can't even take Joseph Conrad. Dickens is hard work simply because the language has yeah. changed. I mean, you need a guide to read Shakespeare. It's there, it's in English, but you, you really need to go to a class. You can't just sort of flick open Titus Andronicus and go, oh, hey-ho, I see what's going on here. You know, it, even the plays that I studied, I would have to probably study again. A, a good production of Shakespeare, and you can kind of get what's going on. Uh, Emma and I went to, um, wow, I think it was... As You Like It or something in London, and they had a bar, and I've never drunk to Shakespeare before. Oddly enough, I really enjoyed it. By the third glass of Lady Petrol, I was just deep into it. You know, that I don't know what it was. The word sort of swam into focus. Maybe I was relaxed enough. Maybe you need to be drunk drinking to, to take those plays in, and then suddenly the language is sort of, just sort of swarms at you, just squirms at you out of it. Out of the off the stage, you know, what a beautiful way to put things, you know. So I I would say yeah, you know, if you're if you're still a, I'm allowed to drink, maybe just take a bottle of wine and go and see a play, Shakespeare play. 
Right. I, you know, I, I, I wish I was more literate. I, but I can. I don't have the patience. I'm a very twentieth century person. I can't. I can't like my favorite poets, T.S. Eliot. I can't understand Keats or Shelley or Byron. I just don't have the patience for it, you know, or the metaphysicals. But, but once you get to Eliot, who used a modern jargon, I can follow him perfectly. And he, like Dylan, is a, a magpie, a jackdaw. He takes all these little quotes from places and then builds his own, his own equally beautiful world. But, but. You know, you you find everything comes from somewhere. I wish my stuff was learned enough that I could do like notes on the wasteland, like Dylan did. I, if I had a record, I could have. Hey, this is this is derived from hearing that. You know, this is a piece of. Um, you know, th this is adapted from a line in a song. This is taken from a poem. Yeah. You know? And we're at the halfway point, my conversation with Robin Hitchcock at the Virgin Hotel in downtown Chicago. This is Carcone Carne, presented by the Autobahn Mazda of Evanston, 1015 Chicago Avenue, right over there between Maine and Dempster. Can I run through some of your songs that have made connections with me and get mm, some quick do, thoughts on them? Do, far away. Uh, let's start with Madonna of the Wasps. Oh, which yeah. You, you played a very delicate acoustic version of Last Night. I have always thought this song, the recorded, the, the studio version, is the perfect pop song. It's not a typical pop song, but I love the way it goes storming in and you kind of rein it in with your voice. Like the second the music crescendos, you kind of put your arms around it. And it really has an interesting way of collecting momentum, moving forward. It's just a really well-constructed song. Uh, thank you. It was, um, I mean, the recorded version fades in because there was a whole early section which we ditched and I don't play any of it live now, but we used to do a little bit of it live and the end of the first section wound up with, is this love? And then you've got the second section, which is what people know as the song now. And then there's the instrumental, which I think just repeats and fades out. It might even be an edit. Um, so I know that's that recording fades in and out. Um, and um, I, I, was, I admire, I like, whatever it was that Andy Metcalf did as a sort of keyboard overdub, I, I kind of felt it cluttered it up in a way, but I also like there was some quite subtle little notation thing he did in the background. He was very good at that sort of thing. So uh, it tended to thicken the music a bit, which I'm not sure was a good idea, but, but the actual notes I thought were great. But yeah. Long gone, long gone that version. I probably played at half that speed now. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about a more modern song. I, I think this is one of your, of the modern Hitchcock era, I think this is one of your masterpieces, Goodnight Oslo. I, I think oh. it's a, a beautiful slow burner, oh. kind of epic. Thank you. Um, Goodnight Oslo. Yeah, not many people have picked up on that. I, I It was um, based on a... Have you been to Scandinavia? I've not. Um, well, because it, it's nearer the poles, it's further north, so they have very long twilights. And in midsummer, you can down the south. It doesn't get completely dark, but you have a kind of arc of about I don't know four hours when it's getting dark, and then it's sort of dusky and then it sort of gets light again but it's all quite slow 
the closer you are to the equator, the quicker the, the snap between light and dark is, you know. But, but there you can sometimes have these sort of, feels like a six or seven hour twilight. And um, uh, there were a couple of all night parties that I was at. It's a delicate way of describing them, <laughs> <laughs> polite way of... Um, and uh, the kind of insomnia that followed that and the psychosis centered around the um, Vigaland, the, the Frogner Park in the middle of Oslo, which is a... Um, this artist, Vigaland, in in the 40s, I mean, right around the time the Germans invaded, but I think he might have done it just before they got there, but he he sculpted all these grey stone characters, human characters, slightly larger than life, but they almost looked like actual people. They were very naturalistic, a bit like the H.P. Lovecraft story where the wax museum is actually real people covered in wax. Um, as if there were real, you know, dead people in there. It's as if Vigeland has trapped all these grey, writhing souls. There'll be an old man. There's a famous one of a young kid, sort of like a one-year-old, just kind of howling, like that. There's couples draped around each other quite erotically. The, the statue, you know, they're kind of erotic without pushing it but there's something very sensual about these bodies and right in the middle of this park the, the park has these grey characters trapped grey souls dotted around it in the Scandinavian twilight right in the centre is the monolith which is a tower a, 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 a sort of almost like a, as if a cigar tube has been filled with little grey people and tapped out and there they are it's about um I don't know, maybe 150 feet high, and it's made entirely of writhing grey people. And I first saw this um, after what, at the end of one of these um, all-night parties, and I was in an extremely dislocated state. And many years <laughs> later, I wrote Goodnight Oslo, and um, uh, one of the characters in it, Arold Skrindo was still alive and he heard the song and he's, he just vanished. <laughs> um, but um, boy, yeah, that was a, that's a mood piece, so I'm glad you like it. I love it. Obviously it. Caught the, it caught the feeling of what I was writing about, you know. And, and Tromsø, right up the top, is um, in the middle of summer, there's no darkness at all. So if you're in Tromsø, it's... Um, there's two months of no dark, you know, having your eye, eyelids sewn open. And then in midwinter, there's two nights, months of no light. It would completely do my head in. I couldn't yeah. stand it. I like South Norway with a, you know, I'm a twilight soul. I like that. So right down the bottom, Christian sand is, is much more gentle. But even the north of Britain, I mean, I was in Edinburgh um, at midnight a couple of years ago, and I realized it wasn't dark, you know. Uh, Scotland is only couple of hundred miles off the Norwegian coast so and Scotland I dare say if you know I f always feel like if if Brexit fully went through Scotland might 
leave Britain and sort of, you know, join the Scandinavian, the, the old Hanseatic League or something. For a man who's known for his surrealistic take on stuff, Glass Hotel seems like the most straightforward. Uh, it's a storefront Hitchcock favorite. Uh, it's a good version on that film Jonathan Demi did. Uh, Glass Hotel, uh, well, I think it's pretty visual. I mean, I think my songs are visual more than necessarily surrealistic. But surrealism is a term applied to paintings, so yeah. You know, the glass hotel, it's it's just a hotel made of glass. I think there's, I think there's a hotel made of ice somewhere in Sweden. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the events occur inside the, the glass hotel and the, the flower coming out of the phone and... Um, and and the radio in in the corridor uh, and the person standing next to somebody who isn't there you know they're all things you can see in the glass hotel um, and then the fact that there is only ever one moment despite the fact that we are you know history must have got us here and destiny will remove us you know they both end in Y. <laughs> but meanwhile, you're just here. Uh, let's jump much more current. Uh, Time Coast uh, on the most recent album is one of my favorites. Oh, thanks. It, it sounds like a just very jangly, 60s, psychedelia-flavored song. I mean, it's well, great, great hook. Thanks. I mean, that's what I've, my whole career, when I, you know, I have basically sort of two and a half settings. One of them is Revolver by the Beatles, and I suppose the other one is probably um just acoustic and i know i make quite quiet records i often dream of trains i um the man upstairs are all drum free acoustic guitar driven um and then i'll do my sort of jangle pop ones from the soft boys underwater moonlight up to the robin hitchcock record which was very much um that template with yeah. you know Brendan Benson saying could you make a record like like that like he imagined the soft boys were so we did that and, uh, you and Time Brendan Coast Benson, has that yeah you and Brendan Benson are both raconteurs I mean he is <laughs> he's natural raconteur he's yes. in the raconteurs with Jack White yeah they're making a new record now excellent um, so Time Coast has got that element and it's set uh, you know and it's another kind of aiming at revolver and missing which is really the <laughs> that's my my sh my technique my shtick has been to aim at revolver and miss uh because it means you're aiming high so you know even though you're not going to actually write revolver um for a variety of reasons um you're you're going to get your dart in a good part of the board you know if if you if that's what you want to do and i and i've i've been i've made no bones about that since i first appeared with the soft boys in 1977 8 you know that's that's what i was trying to do um it's a genre of music like taking it back to the beginning of of this conversation um you know like blues or like country or like bluegrass or like reggae or ska I'm not quite sure what this genre is. People call it psychedelic or they call it classic pop or they 
you know, Spangle Rock or whatever it is. Um, but it's a lot of what I do is in that genre and it's with that lyrical outlook. You know, if you like the Beatles from 1966 to 1968 and you like Bob Dylan from 1965 to 1968, again, you will probably, what I do will make sense. You may not like it, but you'll understand where it's coming from. And, I, and that's the genre I work in. It's a long, obsolete genre. It's like somebody deciding to play bebop, you know, <laughs> now. Yeah, man, I've got this new kind of jazz. It's called bebop. <laughs> They're going to dig it. The kids are going to love this. All right, so uh, one more know. song I want to float by you. Uh, speaking of the Beatles, let's talk about Beatle Dennis. Let's talk about Flesh Number 1. Oh. Which, uh, this, this to me, Robin, this is one of the more beautiful sounding songs you've ever written. Ah. Uh. Well, thank you. It was actually quite a throwaway, really. It was... Um, what made it was um, Peter Buck. It was the first time I'd ever played with him, and I was making some demos in North London, and he... R.E.M. were making one of their many trips to Britain. I think they were, I think they were recording with Joe Boyd, and I met Peter on their previous trip uh, so this was like March or March 1985 yes sir March 1985 just before I got to Chicago for my first glimpse of the Metro um, was the, when was the Union Carboid building put up oh my god I couldn't even tell you looks kind of 80s to me I can't uh, could be uh, well I don't know if it was there or not maybe they were building it but uh, so Peter Buck came around to my friend Chris's house and he had about half an hour um, I think he'd been up all night he was quite perky and um, I played two songs he'd never heard before and as is his won't he sat there with a I think he borrowed a 12-string of mine, and we played a song called Bird's Head, which I think came out eventually in one of those retrospective ones, and we did a demo for Beetle Dennis, and he just did this brilliant thing that he does sometimes where he will find a pattern to play over over the song he's good because he's not a noodler he's not a licks man peter listens to stuff and he'll either kind of replicate what you're doing and reinforce it or he'll come up with a little hook line i mean the probably the most one of the most famous ones with rem would be um shiny happy people mm -hmm. or south central rain or, I mean, so distinct. yeah i guess so i i, I yeah yeah probably I, don't, I i know shiny happy people is the I know that's Mike Mills's chords, and then Peter put that over the top, the the hook, you know, and um, and he would have done that little mandolin hook and um, the huge hit, uh, losing my religion. And Beetle Dennis, he just came in and went ba da 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 ba da 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 ba da 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 da, 
and I'm basically just playing them more than this chords, you know. Um, <laughs> Going uh, back to Roxy music. And I'm singing, you know, different lyric, different melody, different vibe, and then and then the song goes off, the chords meander. But but what Peter did was he really made that. I should probably have given him some, given him a co-composition or something on that. But he, um, uh, but he he really I thought made that song, and I I don't play that unless I've got somebody to play that. There's nothing, you know, the song is incomplete. That's why I never play it. If I have somebody else playing that melody line. But I think that's the, that's the thing that, the most striking example of what Peter can add to uh, a song. Certainly one of mine, you know. It's fantastic. All right, Robin Hitchcock, you are a delight. You're a musical hero. Oh well, it's very sweet of you, James. I'm glad we were able to do it. Me too. I, and I'm so glad I saw you again last night. Uh, and you know, we love you here. Uh, well, I love being here. I love playing in Chicago. It's it's always been good. It's um, since way back in uh, 1985. It's always been great to play here. It's this is. This is up there with New York and San Francisco as oh my god you know this is one of this is one of the gigs it's a special yeah. it's the Chicago night right so um I don't think I've got any more shows booked here this year but I would aim to come back and do some more next year and I'll let you know but um we That's all we can ask we uh, no I, I I totally love it and as we're sitting here in the Virgin Hotel, we're on the second floor of the Virgin Hotel. Over, oh, yes. Uh, and we're overlooking the L train. This is not yeah. a train you would dream about. You would not often dream of the L train in Chicago. I could easily dream of it because the L train here on Lake and Wabash, actually, it it comes towards you and then, and then it curves around and goes away again. I've never been anywhere where you've had a view of a train constantly turning a corner it's coming at you and then it goes away again it's it's quite a tease <laughs> and i think it also sets off the street corner rather beautifully it does see i have insider's knowledge i know that inside it probably smells like pee and that taints my my view of the aesthetics my my overall visual sense well to worry about one's appearance is bourgeois but it's <laughs> always best to smell good <laughs> robin hitchcock thank you uh thanks for having me james